What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the Mind Over Macros podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mike Milner. And today, I brought you an incredible guest, Sal Stefano from the Mind Pump podcast. Uh, he just communicates so effectively. It was great to just have a conversation and hear his perception, his take on just everything in the fitness industry. We talked about intuitive eating. We talked about technology. Uh, he told his story. It was just an amazing conversation that you guys are really going to enjoy. So if you can, please do us a favor, send us, give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. And if you enjoy this episode, take a screenshot, tag myself at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner and tag Sal at Mind Pump Sal on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. All right, guys, I am super pumped right now because I am joined by Sal Stefano of Mind Pump. And when it comes to just putting out quality information and just a ton of valuable content, there's really nobody doing it better than the guys over at Mind Pump. So, Sal, I appreciate you joining me. Thanks. I really appreciate you having me on your show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the first place that I always like to start is I love to hear people's kind of first introduction into fitness. Like what was your very first exposure? And then what was that moment, if you remember, where you were like, holy shit, I want to do this for the rest of my life? Oh, wow. That was really early for me, actually. I'm, I'm either fortunate or unfortunate to have found an extreme passion for fitness at a very very early age. I'd always idolized, uh, you know, strength, uh, physical strength and muscularity. Um, as a kid, I read Incredible Hulk uh, comic books. I was a big fan. I thought the I thought the Hulk was the best superhero just because he was so strong. Uh, my dad was a very physical uh, person. I loved Arnold Schwarzenegger and Sylvester Stallone movies. Um, you know, so I was a big fan of those things when I was a kid, and I knew that that lifting weights could help build muscle or change and shape the way that you, you looked and, and increase strength. And my dad had a, a weight set in the backyard at one point. He actually bought himself a, uh, like a, like an Olympic weight set. This was a bench barbell and a couple dumbbells. And every once in a while he'd go out there and lift weights. So I, I, I got exposed at a pretty young age. I'd say I was about 13 years old, uh, to him lifting weights, but he would tell me not to, not to, you know, work out with his weights uh, for fear of injuring myself. And so I would do things in my room. I had a, a pair of these uh, like plastic, I don't know, cement filled dumbbells. And it came with this, this sheet that had exercises listed on it. And I started out by doing those exercises every night. And they were just basic, you know, exercises, you know, chest press and shoulder press and rows. I had no idea what I was doing. I would just follow the sheet. Um, and then at 14 years old, went in the backyard and um, started to lift weights. I, I bought uh, the Arnold Schwarzenegger Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding, which is a phenomenal uh, book on weightlifting exercises and resistance training. Um, it's got history of bodybuilding in there, and it's got different you know, old-school bodybuilders demonstrating different exercises. Pretty much every exercise you can imagine with free weights was in this book. It was huge. It was a massive I don't know, five, 800, maybe 800 pages, a uh, real thick kind of Bible of bodybuilding. And I read that thing cover to cover at least a dozen times. And so I'd go in the backyard and I'd, I'd do the exercises and I'd follow routines and I'd be out there for two or three hours at a time. I mean, I immediately I fell in love with 
uh, with working out. And, and the part of it that I love the most was the, the fact that I could work out and that I could see or feel visible change within a re- relatively short period of time. Now, initially, I didn't see any change because I was a skinny 14-year-old kid, but I would get stronger, you know, so I'd, you know, I'd load up the, the, the barbell um, and I'd do five reps of something. And then the next week I'd be able to do six or seven reps. Um, and it was like that pretty, you know, when you first start working out, your gains come pretty quickly, especially when you're a, a young kid. A lot of it having to do with just getting more coordinated. But I would just improve, uh, you know, each time I worked out and I was just, I loved it. I know here, here I am, I'm this skinny kid and I could just work out and get my body to change. And I fell in love with it right away, immediately. Um, probably two or three months into the, my workout, uh, you know, routine or whatever, I uh, my parents bought me a boombox uh, for my birthday. And it, if you're you're probably too young to know what that is, but a boombox back in those days was a, a just a, a stereo system, and it had these two removable speakers on either side, and it had a tape. Uh, cassette in the middle that you could put a tape in there and you could hit play and then you, you could also listen to the radio. And um, I, a friend of mine gave me a Metallica uh, tape, Master of Puppets. It was the first tape I ever worked out to. And I remember, man, it was the first time I ever, I ever knew the power of music with working out. And I hit play, Master of Puppets comes on, and I was like, this is the best thing in the world ever. And it was probably right around then that I decided this is, I probably want to do something in this space uh, for a career for the rest of my life. I didn't know what it was. I really didn't know what existed out there. I didn't know that there were personal trainers, for example, but I knew that I wanted to work with exercise, with people somehow. Um, And that was it. Never stopped. I had never stopped uh, since that point. And that had progressed into getting my first gym membership uh, at the YMCA and, uh, you know, having a few shenanigans there, um, getting kicked out of the YMCA. That's a great story if you want to hear that at some point. Um, and then uh, working out at 24 Fitness and then I became a trainer there and then that was it. The rest is history. Nice. I love that story and that uh, the image that I get in my mind, it's, it's vivid and I think that's a powerful message from that experience of just seeing change you know, you felt the difference between being able to do five reps, then six reps, and then the internal connection between just getting pumped up with that music and the boombox. And by the way, I'm I'm 34, so I do have some familiarity with boomboxes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's awesome. And so let's talk about the evolution from there. Uh, you know, you you fell in love. You were passionate about it. You're like you knew in some way that this was going to be a part of your life. Um, and so, you know, what was kind of the next step for you at that point? Well, in those early days, it was a lot of experimentation um, of working out on my own, taking supplements. I actually bought books on chemistry to figure out what supplements to take and combinations to take. Actually, uh, came up with some pretty dangerous combina- combinations mm-hmm. uh, looking back. Um, I remember at one point, I think I was, I want to say I was 17, maybe 16 or 17. And um, at this time, uh, ephedra was, you could buy it over the counter. I think you still can, but it, you have to, it's, it's kind of difficult, but back then you could buy it. It wasn't a big deal. And I knew ephedra, you know, was a strong stimulant. I knew caffeine was a stimulant and I had read how combining it with aspirin would prolong its effects. And then I had also read about another stimulant called, uh, Yohimbi, which Yohimbi now you can find it in a lot of supplements. 
But I read how they all worked and how they could work synergistically, how basically ephedra and caffeine raises the temperature of, a, of your thermostat, if you will, of your body, and how Yohimbi raises the limit of the thermostat. So it kind of has this compounding effect. So I went to the store, uh, went to the, the supplement store and bought bottles of each and took doses of each and worked out for like four hours and then came home and laid on my bed and uh, prayed not to die because I felt my heart beating out of my chest. Those are, those are all great stories. But anyway, so, you know, 16 years old at that time, I'm working in a pizzeria. I'm uh, washing dishes. I, I got, I got jobs really early on. I think the first job I had, I was 14 or 15 years old. So I always had that kind of, uh, you know, spirit of wanting to, to you know, produce for myself. Um, and I wanted to work in gyms at 16, but the, the, the age limit was 18. They wouldn't hire you if you were 18. So I waited, I waited until I turned 18. And, um, when I became 18 years old, my idea was to work in the gym in some capacity and, uh, to get my foot into the door of, you know, a fitness of the fitness industry, uh, if you will. Now I thought at that point that I would be a physical therapist because I thought, okay, what are the fields that use exercise? And of those fields, which ones have the most promise as a career in terms of, you know, paying in terms of prestige and that kind of stuff. And so I, I knew a physical therapist. So I thought, okay, I'm going to become a physical therapist. But until I, I graduate and, you know, get my degree and all that, I'll go work in the gym and get my foot in the door. So I walked into the 24 fitness I was a member of uh, here in San Jose and it's, uh, you know, back in those, this was uh, one of the flagship clubs of 24 Fitness, uh, but it was also one of the older ones. So it had racquetball in there and it had a women's only area. And the, the you know, the weight area was, you know, kind of cool. So I walk in and, and to the front desk and um, I said, hey, I'd, I'd like an application. I want to be a personal trainer. So the young lady at the front walks in the back and comes out, comes the fitness manager. Um, Sean Winters, his name, I remember it to, to this day. He comes out and he gives me the, this this application, and I was very I was a very assertive, I guess confident in certain areas uh, individual at that age. I mean, I wasn't fully confident, but if you put me in the gym and you had me talking to someone about fitness, I was very confident. So I shake his hand and right on the spot, he's like, "You're hired." Um, so I get the job, and it was uh, right immediately. Um, I, I, I fell in love with it. I mean, the very first day I walked in to work, I was supposed to shadow uh, another personal trainer. And I shadowed the, at the time, top trainer in the club. And this is back in 1997 or 98, I believe. And in those days, personal training wasn't really a big revenue source for gyms. It was kind of an afterthought. You know, they had personal trainers and but they really bring in much revenue. It wasn't really a big deal. Um, 24 Fitness at this point had been one of the, uh, the fastest growing fitness companies in the world. Actually, they're, they're one of the pioneers in, in terms of how to make uh, money owning gyms. Because up until that point, there were very few players in the gym industry that were really successful. Most gyms at that point were owned by you know, some dude or, or, or couple who, who liked to work out. And they didn't make a ton of money. And there were a few players that made that did real well. There was uh, Ray Wilson's Family Fitness and 24 Hour Nautilus, which then bought Ray Wilson's Family Fitness and changed their name to 24 Hour Fitness. And they were kind of dabbling in in personal training as being a revenue source. And so I, I, I walked in, and, and the top trainer is sh you know showing me around. And um, 
the club's total sales goal for personal training, and keep in mind this was one of their flagship clubs, so it's one of their bigger clubs, was about, I want to say about thirteen or $15,000 for the month. It doesn't sound like much right now for a big club, but back then that was a lot of money uh, for personal training. And this particular trainer, when he introduced himself, he introduced himself as the top selling trainer. I remember him being uh, a bit cocky about it. Like I'm the top selling trainer. And you know, it's the, it was like mid month and he'd already sold like 800 or a thousand dollars worth of personal training. So he was kind of boasting. And the, what you did as a trainer in those days is you did what were called uh, fit start, fit start orientations. And what those were, were, were a member would come in, buy a membership and they would get scheduled for a fit start. And in that fit start, the trainer would show them something like five pieces of equipment. And the goal was to orient them to the gym, but also the goal was to talk to them about personal training and hopefully get them to hire you as a trainer. And so he had something like six or seven of these fit starts scheduled for the day. He had a full day uh, ahead of him. And he took me through and, and I shadowed him for two of them. So I watched what he did. He would take the person back to a desk, they fill out a questionnaire, he'd ask them about their goals, and he'd take them out, show them some equipment, and then he'd take them back, talk to them about training, and then they'd leave. And he did this for two appointments. And after the second appointment, you know, this guy, I think he thought that he would be able to get the rest of the day off. So he looked at me, he goes, okay, do you got that? Does that make sense to you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay, cool. Do you want to take the next five appointments? I'll take off if you feel confident doing the next five. And I was like, man, it was like, you ever watch... um like bull riding and you see the bull behind the gate and it's, it's like antsy, like it just needs space, you know? And they open the door and the bull goes nuts. That was me. Like, he's like, you want to do the rest of these appointments? And I'm like, hell yeah, let's do this. So he takes off. And that day, uh, I sold, I think something like $3,000 or $3,500 worth of personal training. I did more than he'd done ever uh, in his entire career. And, you know, with a club goal of 13, of 13,000 or $15,000, it was a big chunk. So I had this massive day and it caused a huge, uh, huge commotion in the gym. I had no idea what I was doing was, I had no idea that was a big deal. I just, I saw these people, they came in, I did, you know, what the trainer did before, but I was very passionate, very, I guess, convincing, um, you know, with, with the way I presented things. And these people, and I, I wasn't even certified at this point. I was, I was in the process of, they had signed me up for the next certification. At, at this time, 24 Fitness provided people with certifications. Um, and so I wasn't even certified. So I would sell, I sold training to the people and I told them, I'm not going to be able to train you till next month. I'm not even certified yet. And they were all like, sure, we'll wait. And so that was the beginning of my career. And I, I remember the second day walking in, the manager takes me in the, the general manager takes me in the office and is like, what are you saying to these people? Like, what's going on? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm just really passionate. And I love what I'm doing. And she was, uh, she was like, okay. She goes, um, uh, let's see, let's, let's have you take some more today and see what happens. I think she thought it was just kind of a fluke. And no, that first month I sold, I think seven or $8,000 worth of personal training. And, um, you know, I became the manager four months later, uh, 18 year old kid. I'm managing all these trainers. School starts. I'm going to college now part-time or, or I should say junior college. Um, and so my schedule was kind of crazy. I'd, I'd come to work at 8 a.m. and I'd at noon I'd leave, take some classes. I'd come back at 4 p.m. and I'd work again till 8 p.m. And I did that for I want to say about uh, maybe six months. And um, then I, I thought to myself, you know, this is I don't know if if, if this is what I want to do while I'm going to school. This is kind of crazy. I'm gonna have to commit. 
to one thing or the other. And so I told my manager, I think I want to, I, I need to go to school because I want to be a, a physical therapist. And he looked at me and he said, okay. And he goes, do you know how much physical therapists make? This was, remember, this is back in 1998, I think. And I said, yeah, I think, you know, I, I did my research and physical therapists earn about, you know, sixty-five dollars to $75,000 a year. And he said, Sal, he goes, you're making that much right now. And it didn't even occur to me. Again, remember, I'm a kid, so I'm kind of naive and I'm getting my paychecks and I'm just putting them in the bank and I really don't have any concept or idea of what's what's a lot of money or whatever. And I, and I remember looking, thinking about that and I said, I am, I am doing that much. And he said, Sal, he goes, you can become a general manager and he pulls out his check and he shows me how much he made. And at those, in those days, general managers, if you perform well, would make six figures. He says, you could be a general manager, then you could be a district manager. And and he goes, and plus, you know, physical therapy is a, it's a clinical setting. You're working in a hospital, you're, you're rehabbing people, insurance pays for it. A lot of times people don't want to be there. He goes, do you want to work in a gym or do you want to work in a hospital? I was like, yeah, I want to work in a gym. And so he, I told him, I said, well, my parents are going to have an issue with this. And um, he said, well, let me come over to your house and talk to your parents. So I said, okay. So I invited him over to my house for dinner and he sat down and, you know, he's a very charismatic, convincing person. And he brought his, his paycheck and his W-2 and all that stuff. And he showed my parents and showed my parents what I was doing. And he said, I think your son has a lot of potential here. And I think he's already doing better than he would be if he went to school and all that. And he really likes it here. And um, I convinced my parents to give me a year to do this. And at the end of the year, if I decided I don't like it, I'd go back to school. But I never did. I was it. I, I, I was I was hooked. I, I, you know, in a short period after that, I became a general manager uh, managing, you know, big box gyms and then I left uh, for a little while, bought a gym in, in down in Southern California with uh, the guy who actually came to talk to my parents about, uh, you know, leaving school. He actually, me and him both left together and o- opened a gym and then sold that, went back to 24 Fitness and grand opened a few of their clubs. And then I left again and, and opened my own uh, personal training and wellness studio. And I owned that for about, I think, 13 or 14 years um, in in during that period, that was a, a real period of growth for me, not so much in business, but more uh, personal growth uh, in terms of, you know, really shaping the voice and message that I have now on Mind Pump, which is being able to combine, uh, you know, fitness, aesthetics, muscle building, fat loss with wellness and health and all those aspects and being able to communicate them in ways that, um, you know, really can connect to both the hardcore fitness enthusiast and bodybuilder and to the average person and, and to the hippie yoga person who, you know, wants nothing to do with the building muscle. Um, and that whole period for me, I look at that as like, it was school. It really taught me kind of, you know, where I'm going to be with this, with fitness and how I'm going to communicate it. And it led me to mind pump, um, you know, where I'm at now. Yeah. Wow. I love that story. And as you were telling it, one of the things that kind of sticks out to me, anybody who listens to you on Mind Pump knows that you have this gift for communicating information. And I'm wondering if that was kind of the catalyst for your early success, if you feel like that was something that you always had as a natural ability, or if it was a skill that you realized at a young age, like I need to develop this skill of of communication um, and being able to 
portray information in a way that's easy to digest and easy to understand because it seems like it comes natural, but I'm wondering if um, that was something that you recognized early on that you just had that gift and wanted to hone in on it more or if it was something that you were very intentional about developing. Yeah, it was. It, I think it's a combination of both. I mean, as a, as a real young kid, I was always told, um, you know, that I, I they, uh, my nickname was Big Mouth. You talk a lot. You talk too much. Uh, you like to argue. Um, I, you know, I, I also loved consuming information. So I would actually, this is, you know, kind of funny, but I would many times when my friends would go outside and play, I'd want to stay inside and read the encyclopedia of all things. I was very curious. And then I'd go and I'd talk to adults and I would tell them what I learned in the encyclopedia. And so, you know, I was always told, oh my gosh, you like to talk or whatever. My mom also kind of fostered this at a young age. She allowed me to argue with her. So if she told me I couldn't do something or I couldn't get something or whatever, I would make my case and I got really good at arguing my case. Um, And, you know, my dad would get angry and tell my mom, why do you let him argue so much? Just tell him no and that's it. My mom said, no, I want him to be able to you know, argue his position. And, you know, most times I wouldn't win the argument, but every once in a while, my mom would look at me and say, um, okay, you actually made a really good point there. So I think I'll let you, you know, do what you want to do or whatever. So I think that's kind of how it started. Um, you know, and, and walking into the gym those first days and selling training, I mean, it was, it, it was a gift because I didn't really have any experience. Um, I think there was a lot of passion behind what I talked about. I was able to communicate well based off of, you know, how I grew up and, and, and maybe if you want, if you will call it talent or whatever, natural ability, but it was definitely honed and uh, sculpted and turned into uh, a much more powerful focused tool through my years, uh, managing people, managing gyms, teaching sales training, teaching communication courses. I did this for a while for uh, for 24 fitness. And of course in, in the facility that I, that I own later on with the staff that I worked with. Um, I remember the first, this is probably, I want to say a year and a half into my career, uh, maybe a little longer at 24 fitness. The, and I was very lucky to work for a company that was trailblazing. Now 24 fitness now, you know, big company, been around a while, whatever. Um, but at one point it was, I mean, they, they, they created and invented the model. I mean, they were the first gyms to really understand how to use EFT. Like you, when you go to a gym now, the way you pay your monthly dues is through electronic, right? Trans, funds transfer. Back then, nobody did that. 24 Fitness was the first ones to really push that. And that's just, I mean, that is one of the key components of being a successful gym. If you don't do that, very, very hard to collect your money on time. And you got people dropping off. And it's, that was the biggest hurdle. They were the first ones to do it. They were the first ones to understand the sales process. They were the first ones to really push personal training. They were the first gym to put nutrition in their clubs and all that stuff. And so what they did, they were very forward thinking, is they put their managers through and, and their top salespeople through a sales course. They actually put us through this, I think it was like a four-day sales course called Mastering the Art of Membership Sales. And it was written and put together by one of the greatest sales communicators of all time, Tom Hopkins. Um, Tom Hopkins is known as, as this old school sales guy that would teach you communication techniques and how to get people to understand your point and you know bring them from where they're at to the sale. And, and there's all these different things and, uh, that you learn there. So we took this course and it was funny taking the course, they were putting words and definitions and structure around things that I had done naturally. 
So like there were things that I had done naturally. For example, there's a, a communication technique uh, known as uh, feature benefit tie down. This is when you, let's say you're, you're, you're showing someone your gym, you're giving a tour and you want to show them what your facility looks like. So you say, look at all this, uh, look at all this great cardio. That would be a feature of your gym, but that's not, you're not going far enough. You have to also explain the benefit of that because that person, a lot of cardio could mean nothing. Okay, whatever. There's a lot of cardio. So then what you do is you walk them over, you show them the cardio and you say, Hey, cardiovascular activity helps burn calories and is very good for your heart. In fact, if you do cardio every day, you'll burn maybe, you know, two, 300 more calories a day, which, uh, you know, which, so you'll tell them, Hey, you'll burn more calories. So that's the benefit of, of the, the cardio, but then you have to, kind of tie it down. And the way you tie it down is you explain the benefit connected to them and get them to agree. So I'd say, here's all this cardio in the gym. Um, it, you know, if you get on this cardio and you do a little bit of cardio every day, you can burn extra calories. Burning extra calories will help you burn more body fat off your body and help you get to your goal of getting leaner. Can you see how that'll help you? And they'll say, yes. So what I've done is I've tied it down and got them to agree with me because every statement that you make when you're communicating with someone is true or false. Every statement that they agree with is true in their mind, right? So it's just a communication technique. Um, salespeople have been, you know, using it for a long time. And if you listen to effective communicators when they're talking to people, they can get people to kind of understand their point if they help, if, if they use that technique. And it's not, you're not tricking anybody. It's just a very effective way of communicating. And it's something I'd always done, but now I had a structure around it and explained it. And they did this with all these different things. I remember it was mind blowing. Like, oh shit, that's what, that's what's going on here. And then there were things I learned that I didn't know. And so it helped me kind of hone my skill of communication. The other thing too is, uh, one of the best places in the world to learn how to communicate effectively. And when I say effective communication, what I mean is, um, you know, you have an idea in your mind, you have an opinion. Or an idea in your mind. And let's say it's a very well thought out, well formed opinion. Let's say it's something that you've looked at, you know, all angles of, you've looked at both sides of, you're very, very confident that you have the right opinion. So when it comes to fitness, for example, you know, I know for a fact that if somebody finds a way to make fitness and health uh, a priority in their life, it will benefit the rest of their life. It'll make them better parents, better people. It'll improve their business. Of course, it'll improve their health, the way they think, their confidence. It'll decrease uh, symptoms of anxiety, depression. I mean, a good fitness and health routine and practice is will make anybody's life better. And I'm a 100% convinced on that, 100%. So I know that that's in my mind. If I could find a way to just transfer that into the person, into the, into the individual's mind that I'm trying to convince, if I'm talking to the average person who doesn't work out, if I could just take what I know and take it out of my mind and just place it in their mind so that instantly they know what I know, they understand what I understand. They have the wisdom that I have around fitness and health. I would never have to convince them to hire a trainer or get a gym membership or eat right. It would just happen, right? They would just be like, I know, but we can't do that. Unfortunately, what we have to use are words. That's how we communicate. And so effective communicating is being able to get that person to really understand and feel what I can understand and what I can feel. 
And so there's, there's ways of doing that and there's techniques of doing that. But also the, the number one thing that helps you do that is practice. Nothing will make you a better communicator than just practicing, talking to people and seeing what works and what doesn't work. And one of the best places in the world to do that is in a gym because in a gym, the sales process is fast and you get to do, you get to practice it a lot. Like, like if you're going to sell cars, for example, you might talk to two customers a day and you might try to sell two cars a day. If you sell houses, the sales process for a house can take months. Well, when you're selling gym memberships or personal training, that sales process is 30 minutes to an hour at the most. An hour is a long presentation, usually around 30 minutes. And, and sometimes you get 15 opportunities in a day. So you can imagine how fast you get good at communicating. You can see what works and what doesn't work. And you can see when you talk too much and how to act and react, how to, how to communicate to a person who wants to lose weight, how you can communicate to a person who wants to build muscle, how you can communicate to a young person, an old person, a quiet person, an apprehensive person, an energetic person, uh, how to be able to get the right information across, how you can get someone from a poor understanding of fitness where they come in and say, I want to lose 30 pounds in 30 days, and you can convince them in an effective way that that's not the right way to do it. The right way to do it is, is to take your time and, you know, change your behavior slowly, but not just convince them of that, but convince them of that so much that now that that's how they want to do it, you get the practice every day in the gym. So the best communicators I've ever met in my entire life, and, and I've been around a lot of them in a lot of different industries, were the ones that hone their skills in the gym setting. And so I think for me, it's just a combination of the, you know, maybe some natural ability, my upbringing, and then, and then the fact that I was just talking to people about this day in and day out, uh, for years, uh, all day long. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we translate that into like a fitness analogy, somebody can walk into the gym and perform a squat and have really good form right off the bat. And you see that as kind of that natural gift. Uh, whereas somebody else, you know, you kind of have to walk through the whole process of teaching them the technique. But ultimately, like you said, it comes down to reps. So regardless of whether you're that natural athlete who can who just comes in, they kind of have it and you don't really have to teach much as far as technique goes. But those reps over time are still going to, you know, hone in on that skill, like with what happened to you. And, you know, I think kind of where the next question I was going to ask you, which I think you kind of in a roundabout way already started to answer it. But I want to ask anyway, uh, for somebody who was so in the trenches and immersed in that one-on-one client interaction, um, you were able to deal with people on a personal level where you really knew the context of their life, their values, what was important to them, how to communicate to them. Um, Going from that to now kind of removing yourself from that one-on-one setting and jumping into, you know, a different media outlet where you're now podcasting and you're touching a much wider audience what was that transli- transition like? What were some of the challenges? Um, did you find like you was a hard thing to step away from the one-on-one model? And you know what was kind of the thought process and evolution there? Yeah, at, towards the end of my one-on-one personal training career, I, you know, I had I had known for at least a few years that I needed to grow and do something else, a new challenge. I, I had started to lose my. I never lose my passion for people. So I loved my clients. Um, but I started to lose my passion for, for personal training. And, um, you know, I'm a passion driven individual. 
So I know a lot of people have the ability of just doing something that they're, you know, okay, they kind of like it, but whatever. And they do it, they go to work and then they go home and they're fine. And then they enjoy other things in their life. So it's not that big of a deal. It's very hard for me. I find it very, very difficult to be good and effective at what I'm doing if I don't really have a passion for it. And so I knew I had to do something else. The difficult part about leaving personal training was just the not training these people that I had developed relationships with. I I, uh, trained some of these people for 12 years, you know, you know, every Monday and Thursday at three o'clock, I'd see someone, the same person for 12 years. I mean, you develop a deep, uh, close relationship with them. So that was the hard part, but leaving personal training wasn't difficult. Now, when we started this media company, it started as a podcast only at first. Um, None of us had any experience talking on a podcast or radio None of us had any of that professional experience at all. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, Doug had, who's our producer, he had some equipment and he had, you know, some know-how in terms of how to get episodes posted and what some of the strategies would be. But, uh, but that was kind of it. Now, um, I would say that my host, my, my co-host and I had a natural ability of communicating our ideas and we had honed it through years of personal training because you know my, my co-host Justin and Adam were both also personal trainers for a very long time. So we we knew what worked and what didn't work. And so we had this really solid framework of how we would communicate fitness to the masses. Because you know what happens when you're working with people in person is you get a lot of feedback. You you can see what works and what doesn't work in real time. And so you learn, and the way you learn this, by the way, is you ask a lot of questions. You know, one of the biggest mistakes people make when they're trying to communicate uh, effectively or sell something, for example, is that they talk more than they hear, than they listen. They, they think selling is telling, which it's not. Uh, it's listening. You got to listen. You have to ask the right questions and, and go deeper and, and know what's driving that person and what motivates them. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're communicating the wrong, idea, the, the wrong idea the wrong way or even the right idea the wrong way. You're just you're, you're, you're talking in circles. So you learn to ask questions. And so through the you know, 20 years of, of doing that, you know, I had developed this really solid framework of how to communicate fitness, how to communicate lifting weights to women, how to communicate it to men, how to communicate cardio, how to communicate nutrition and how to change nutrition habits and behaviors, um, how to talk about the myths that are out there in ways that will be effective and not offensive, um, how to inject humor into the conversation in ways that'll get people to want to hear what I'm saying uh, and listen to what I'm saying even more, um, how to take complex ideas and create analogies that will convey those complex ideas in, in very simple ways, um, how to communicate uh, ideas in general, you know, a big mistake a lot of people make is they think the more information they give, the better. But when you work with people in person day to day, you realize that's a very ineffective way of, of communicating. You know, I, I'm talking to a beginner who wants to start working out and I'm going to tell them everything in one hour. They're going to leave not just confused, but probably demotivated it's too much. I can't do anything. Um, so you learn early on what's more effective is to com- communicate some very basic, simple things, but just do it very well. And so that just gave us the framework for how we conduct our podcast. Now, we didn't have the skill of podcasting 
We didn't know, the, we didn't have a great cadence. We interrupted each other a lot. We had good chemistry. I mean, Adam, Justin, and I, although we didn't know each other before starting the podcast, we became very good friends instantly. And we all had a very similar passion um, and similar values. And so the, the, the chemistry was great right out the gate. So that helped a lot. But we weren't good podcasters. Um, you know, we, we didn't have the skill of it. We didn't really understand how to conduct interviews well. We were terrible at interviewing people for at least four or 500 episodes. I mean, it took us that long to start getting the hang of it a, a little bit. And I think now we're just starting to get kind of good. We're not even great yet at that part. Um, so, and it was just practice. Just like I talked about earlier, you know, working in gyms and practicing over and over and over again, we, you know, we do five episodes a week of podcasts. I mean, we're, we're four years in and we're almost a thousand episodes deep. We don't know almost any podcast that do that many episodes. And so we've just honed our skills through practice and you can go back you can go back and listen to, you know, episode a hundred and you'll hear a big difference between then and now. Um, just because we've been doing this now for a little while and practicing so much. Um, but no, it was just, again, that process was uh, just the framework was how we communicated to our clients. Um, and what we had to learn was how to become better, you know, media people, if you will, you know, better on camera, better on audio, um, you know, with better sound and better cadence and better questions and, you know, how to direct conversations and how to have a little bit of structure. That's the process that we've had to learn through this, but in terms of communicating our ideas of fitness, I mean, that was honed and perfected for, you know, two decades before working with people. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys deliver information better than just about anybody out there. But when we talk about kind of the state that we're in right now, there is more access to information than ever before. So you mentioned kind of the process of like, you can't take the idea that's in your head and then implant it into somebody else's. Um, so you try to communicate the information in a way that's understandable, that touches on their values and what might resonate with them. But right now it seems like the more information that we have available, uh, there's also the opportunity for more misinformation and people who are very good communicators who can take, you know, a sliver of science and extrapolate it into, you know, some false claims or get somebody to believe that something's wrong with them that needs to be fixed. And you start to get, you know, what we're up against now, which is like dietary dogma and, you know, celery juice and influencers trying to sell people on, you know, their program. Um, so where do you think we are? Do you think that we've actually regressed having even more access to information uh, in in the sense that, you know, there used to be a lot of myths thrown around and some science would come out and we'd be, okay, we know that this isn't true anymore. But now it's like there's areas that we don't know that much about. There's a little bit of information. We kind of take that, blow it out of proportion. Like where do you see the state of the industry at this point? Yeah, um, the in terms of the average fitness and health consumer, uh, they're in a much better place than they used to be. As bad as it is, okay, as, as much crap that's out there now, believe me, I've been in this industry now, like I said, for 22 years, it's way better. Like the average woman today isn't afraid or repelled by weights like they used to be. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, like one of the, the, the things I had to really learn how to communicate well was how to get my, my female clients to not be afraid of lifting weights. Um, the average consumer today uh, has more nutrition knowledge than they did back then. Um, 
the average consumer today understands more about different forms of exercise uh, than they used to back in the day. So it's, it's, it's better. It's not great. It's better. But we have new challenges. And the, the old challenge was, you know, back in the day, the old challenge was, I just need good, I just need fitness information. Like there's not a lot out there. How do I get it? I could go to, again, buy a magazine, you know, and what do I read? You know, muscle and fitness. There was, there wasn't a lot of places to get information. You had to kind of search for it. Today, information on fitness and health is everywhere. And of course we have the internet. So you have access to all recorded information in fitness and health that's ever been written down ever uh, at your fingertips for nothing. So now the challenge isn't where do I find information and I need to get information? The challenge is now sifting through the information to find the right information. And so what you needed back then was just information. What you need today are mavens of information. People who can sift through it like a filter. People who can communicate it in ways that make sense to you. People that communicate the information that applies to you and can tell you to cut out all this other garbage that really is not going to have any impact on you. And so that's what we try to do uh, with Mind Pump Media is we're trying to communicate information, but really what we're trying to do is be that maven. We're trying to be that filter so that somebody could say, oh my, because what happens is you get a lot of information overload now. Like, oh, you know, I heard carbs are bad over here. Now I heard that they're good over there. I thought vegan was good, but now I'm hearing carnivore might be good. Uh, I heard that lifting heavy weights is great, but now I'm hearing it's bad for your joints and I need to do Pilates. And this person says yoga is the best. And I don't know what to do. So I'm not doing anything. That's the problem now. Like I'm not doing anything. Forget it. I'm just going to do whatever I want. And so what we want to do now is we just want to be the person or the entity that you go, you know what? I know where to go. And I know the people who are going to tell me what to listen to, what not listen to, to listen to, and what to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to. I'm going to go to Mind Pump. They're going to sift that through. They're going to interview the people who they've already done their homework on and they think I need to listen to. They're going to tell me that this new fad that just came out that says that, you know, drinking celery juice is going to solve my problems. They're going to tell me if that's bullshit or not, which by the way it is. They're going to tell me if supplements are something I should really invest in or if it's really not something that's that big of a deal. They're going to tell me how I should lift weights. They're going to teach me, you know, what is the best way to start for a beginner? Um, how to achieve my goals, like all these different things. We want to be that maven. Um, so we're just trying to, to solve the, the modern problems of all this information. But if we were to compare today to 20 years ago, I mean, hands down, it's better today. It's just there's new challenges, but b- trust me, you wouldn't want to go back 20 years ago. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think some of the new challenges, like you mentioned, are just trying to sift through quality information. But then you also have the kind of polarizing opposing views that come up. So I think one of the the things that's happened with the diet industry is there's been this backlash of not dieting. So there's been, you know, an uprising in like just eat intuitively, which I think is one of those things where the intentions are great. But I think the execution is difficult for a lot of people because of the nature of our daily lives and the food environment that we're currently up against. So what's your take on intuitive eating and just some of the challenges that we face with that just, you know, by nature of food accessibility, quality of food choices that are readily available for the average person. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Um, well, first off, I, I embrace the backlash uh, against diets as they have been presented 
and as they are in the industry today. Okay. The way that they've been presented and the way that people understand diets and the way that they're sold is here's your fix. Follow this. Here's our rules for this diet. You know, whether it's don't eat carbs or don't eat these foods or only eat these foods and you'll, your problems will be solved. Um, I, I embrace the backlash against that because those are not solutions. None of them are solutions. The only solution to uh, people's nutritional issues or problems uh, or health-related issues with nutrition are behavior changes. You have to change behaviors. And those diets are just frameworks. They're not changing behaviors. They're like, hey, follow these instructions and that it. But if you don't teach people how to change their behavior, it's not going to help. So the, the, the backlash is great, but the, the, the problem I have with it is that people are now saying, I need no framework and I need no understanding. I'm going to eat intuitively, but they have no idea what that means. In their eyes, intuitively means, I'll just eat what I want, which, well, okay, well, <laughs> we know where that's going to get you. And, and that's, you know, that's what's got us where we're at today. So the, the intuitive eating is exactly where people need to go, but people need to understand that they are in a state of being completely unaware of their own natural intuitions They're, when it comes to nutrition. They're in a state of unconscious incompetence. It's impossible to eat intuitively if you have no idea what that means for you. If you have no, Here's a great example. If you have no idea what it means to be hungry, to actually feel the signal of hunger, then how are you going to, how could you possibly eat intuitively? And I know people listening right now think I'm crazy. Like, oh, I'm, I'm hungry every single day. No, you're not. Most people have never felt, most people who, who were born and raised in modern societies have never felt hungry. We've eaten every single day of our lives since we were born. Unless you were sick, you never went two or three days without food. And look, the human body evolved to go for a long period of time without food. We now have studies that show that fasting, uh, if you're healthy, fasting's got incredible health benefits. Because, and why does it have health benefits? We evolved in an, in an environment that involved lots of fasting. So we evolved to derive health benefits from fasting. Um, most people never fast, so they never feel hungry. What they feel are cravings, you know, context or emotions. I'm, I'm bored, I'm hungry. The commercial for food came on. That makes me want to eat this food or that sounds like it tastes good or whatever. So you're going to try and eat intuitively when you've never felt hungry. The other thing is we're also constantly eating foods that are engineered and designed to make us want to eat more. You know, heavily processed foods are engineered entirely to do that to us. So they kind of hijack our natural intuition. Um, and if you don't believe me, do this experiment on yourself. Get yourself, you know, 2000 calories worth of plain baked potatoes, no salt, no butter, butter, nothing, just plain baked potatoes and see if you can eat them all in one sitting. I guarantee you won't be able to. I guarantee you'll feel nauseous and you'll want to gag after eating about six or 700 calories worth. Now do the same experiment with 2000 calories of potato chips. Just buy some, you know, your favorite brand of potato chips. And I guarantee you'll be able to eat them in one sitting in a matter of, you know, 15 to 30 minutes. Now, what's the difference? The difference is one of them is engineered and designed to overcome your natural intuition of, you know, what's called palate fatigue or, you know, where you feel satisfied or satiated. And so, you know, we're in an environment that doesn't lend itself well to intuition. So if you want to get to intuitive eating, you have to use a basic framework, which may be a diet uh, or at the very least understanding what's in food, understanding macronutrients and calories and how much you need to eat and all that stuff. You have to go through a learning process 
And, and part of that learning process of learning yourself, learning what it means to feel hungry, learning how to cope with boredom and stress and depression without food, learning how to identify what foods do for you besides just tasting good. Like most of us identify with food just based on their taste. We don't really understand that food does more things for us. Like, oh, when I eat lots of vegetables, I have good digestion. My skin is better. I'm in better moods. Once you start to connect those things, you start to find that you enjoy eating things that don't necessarily taste good, but provide other benefits because now you're connecting those things. So intuitive eating is definitely the way we need to go, but we're fooling ourselves if we think that that's not a long, hard work, arduous growth process. And so, yeah, that's the right way. That's the right direction. But you got to have a framework to get there. And, and the beginning of that framework is understanding and becoming aware, moving out of that unconscious incompetence to at least becoming conscious of your incompetence um, and then moving more towards the where you become consciously competent. And then intuitive eating really is an unconscious competence. It's a intuitive eating is, is kind of like walking. Like when you go for a walk, you don't think to yourself, right step, left step, you know, control. Pot. You just walk. It's you're unconsciously competent. Intuitive eating is that state. And, you know, if you're 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, you've been living in a state of unconscious comp- incompetence, getting yourself to a, a point of, of intuitive eating, it's going to take you some time. It's going to take some years. It's a process. It's not a destination, um, but it's definitely the right direction. Yeah, I love that explanation. And it definitely starts with awareness, like you said, behavioral changes. Um, but I think that sometimes we get to a point where we know the food environment, we're aware of what's going on. We know that there are certain foods that will hijack our natural signals of satiety and, you know, they're kind of engineered to overeat and overconsume. So how do we balance that between the other extreme, which is, all right, well, I know that there's, you know, highly processed, hyper palatable foods that are not really going to lend well to intuitive eating. So I'm just not going to eat those. And then we start developing this food morality or black and white thinking or, you know, disordered eating behaviors um how do we kind of balance that kind of both sides of that extreme oh it's the balance happens naturally if you if you understand what's going on so there's a big difference between i can't eat processed food and i don't want to eat processed food huge huge difference so understanding what foods do to you understand and i mean fully like what they really do to you all the way around okay so they taste good that's an easy one to understand i really enjoy eating this okay fine but there's also how it affects your mood your energy your digestion your skin your skin um how it affects you emotionally a lot of emotion around food um understanding all these things then you'll develop uh your own compass and then you'll be put in situations where you're you're out you're by yourself you want to get some food and you think to yourself, ooh, I really want to eat uh, a cheeseburger and french fries because it tastes really good. And you think, well, yeah, but then I'm going to feel this way. It's going to affect my, huh? You know what? I don't want the hamburger and cheese, you know, the, the cheeseburger and the french fries. Or you may be out with some friends you haven't seen for a long time and you're all having a great time and you're reminiscing. They're like, hey, let's go grab a burger and get some beers. And you're like, and you think to yourself, and this will happen intuitively, intuitively, but maybe, you know, initially you think to yourself, well, you know, the burger does taste good and we'll have a lot of fun and we're bonding, but it's also going to affect my health in these ways. I'm not going to like the way I feel digest, but God, I haven't seen my friends in a long time. It's, you know what? I want that cheeseburger and I want that French fries and it's different. That's the balance. The balance comes naturally. It's not about, I can't, it's about, I don't want to, or I want to, and that's it. 
It's it's actually and it's it is simple. It's very very simple. I'm not saying it's easy. There's a big difference. Easy is not the same. Climbing Mount Everest is simple. You go one step after another. Definitely not easy. Uh, getting to this point is not easy, but it is a simple process. And when you get to the point where you you want or you don't want, and you don't say I can't, because can't is uh you know, that's what develops those those issues with food. You know the the tyrannizing yourself, the uh, restricted. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. Now you're going to rebel. Screw it. I'm not going to follow these damn rules I make for myself anymore. I'm going to enjoy my life. How many times have you heard that before? Um, and it go and, it, and you, you do this crazy back and forth. No, it's all about how you how you view what you're doing. And so and look, there are foods that are gen- that are not good for you. That's okay. I can look at a box of you know uh, Cheetos or a bag of Cheetos, and I can say. That food is not good. It's not good for me. I can also say that food tastes really good. So what? Not a big deal. You know, I, I know people have a big problem with this food morality thing. It's like, you know, you're overcomplicating things. The, the problem is not in the identifying that the food is good or bad for you. The problem is in how the person identifies the reason for which they eat or don't eat that food. And if they don't eat that food because they say, I can't, that's the problem. That's what causes the, the, the swings back and forth. It's not the identifying food is good or bad. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, I think that it becomes a little bit more challenging, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this when we're talking about um, kids. And they're not really at that point of maybe you know being mature enough to go through that self-awareness process and having those choices, um, being able to connect to those internal signals. Uh, I think it, it is an evolution over time. So um, is there anything and um you know maybe you can speak to this as a parent yourself about how you try to educate but again not you know you don't want to project any sort of you know disordered eating behaviors but um at the same time we know that a lot of a lot of kids foods and a lot of a lot of what is served at you know school and you know at birthday parties and social events when it comes to dealing with kids is a lot of you know really not quality food um so understanding that this is playing and triggering on a certain reward center in the brain. And there's some neurotransmitter activity that's going on. And, you know, how do we, you know, even begin to kind of unpack that? And, um, you know, maybe you can speak to personal experience and what your approach has been. Sure. Um, well, first I want to preface by saying I'm not a, a child expert or child psychologist. I, you know, my expertise is in fitness and I have children. So this is just based on my own experience. But if you look at, if you look at the food market, and we just talked about how most of the money or, or you know engineering that goes into foods is to make them as as palatable as possible. It's even worse for children's foods because one of the biggest struggles and headaches for parents is getting your kids to eat. And so food manufacturers know if they make something that kids will just want to eat, parents are like, "Oh, cool! Life is so much easier now. I don't have to sit here and force my kids to eat, you know, dinner. They'll just eat it because it's macaroni and cheese, and they really like that." So you're absolutely right. That, that market is, is absolutely terrible. But uh, one, one big thing I want to communicate here is that children learn, the vast majority of what your kids will learn is not from what you say. There's a big, you know, a lot of people think, oh, if I tell my kids the right things and say the right things to them, that's what's going to mold how they view the world and how they think and their morality and that, all that stuff. It does a little bit. Most of it is is what they watch and observe. Most of it, you know, if you're a if you're a heavy smoker and you t- tell your kids don't smoke, don't smoke, it's bad for you. 
the, the signal that's going to win over is the fact that you smoke yourself and that, you know, whatever. So it's all in your behaviors. So number one is how do you, what's your relationship to food and how do you talk about food to yourself? Like if you're a parent and you, you're, you're about to have dinner and you're, you're, you know, let's say your husband brings out, says, Hey, let's have dessert. And you say, Oh no, no, no. I don't want to get fat. Your kid is going to hear that. So you, so if you ever talk to adults who have issues with food, some of their issues come from them being told themselves that they were fat or whatever. And some of it, a lot of it is just them hearing their parents talk about themselves. So number one, it's, it's how you talk about food and how, what your relationship is. Number two, of course, how you talk to your kids about food. Now I don't relate food to uh, the body in the sense of, I don't tell my kids, this will make you fat. This will make you ugly. This will make, I don't say any of that stuff. I'll say things like, this food right here will help your performance. This food right here is good for your brain. This is good for your liver. This food has this nutrient, which does this for you. Um, I'll talk about it in that context. Um, when they're tell me that they're hungry, I'll tell them, I'll give them two healthy options. Uh, you know, Hey, you know, dad, I'm starving right now. What do we have? And I'll say, okay, well we have, I can give you a, uh, you know, cheese stick or I can give you some strawberries. No, no, I don't want that. I want some chips. Okay, well, you're not really hungry. You just have a craving, which is fine. But hunger usually means you'll eat whatever. And those are the two options I'm giving you because they're, those, those are healthier options. And by the way, we don't have chips in the house. Th- that's the other thing. If you don't have it, they won't eat it. Um, kids, you know, they don't have uh, credit cards. They don't have cars typically. Uh, so they don't go and buy their own food. So... That alone, and you don't need to make a big deal about it. You just don't have it. You know, hey, I want this. We don't got it. Sorry. That's it. You know, I'm not going to go into a whole discussion about you shouldn't eat that. It's bad for you. We just don't have it. So they learn their behaviors through just how they live with you. And so they learn that when they're hungry for a snack, well, what we have is maybe, you know, some cheese or maybe a glass of milk or maybe some scrambled eggs that I can make myself or maybe some fruit or some nuts. Uh, but other than that, that's all we got. You know, we don't have any other, other, you know, types of foods in the house. You know, when we eat dinner, this is what we're serving. If you don't want to eat it, that's fine. You don't have to eat all your food. That's another big one. I, I you know, I used to, and this was a hard one for me to learn actually growing up in a, in an Italian, you know, conservative family, old school family. Uh, we were, boy, were we forced to eat, you know, it's kind of in our culture to do so. Um, but I had to learn, you know, we live in modern times, food is everywhere. I don't need to, worry about my kids getting enough calories. So I'll give them their food. And then if they don't want to eat, that's fine. You don't have to eat. I don't let them eat anything else though. So they don't get to go. I don't want to eat that. But now let me go, you know, snack on something else and say, no, this is your option. If you don't want to eat it, that's fine. But you don't, you don't get to eat anything else. Um, and so then they make those choices and it's just, it's just how we are. It's how we live and they learn those skills. And so what ends up happening is at some point, I'm sure they'll move out and they'll probably rebound. I'm pretty sure they'll have a little rebellious stage where, oh my God, I have access to all this crappy food and I have access to whatever I want. And I'm sure they'll eat it all like crazy because that's what you do. That's how you learn. And then they'll start to see how they feel like, oh man, I, I, I don't feel good. And I felt so much better eating the way I grew up. And, you know, they'll, they'll probably get, you know, uh, you know, it's funny. My kids never drink soda, right? We just don't have it in the house. We don't serve it. So we just never have soda. I don't make a big deal about it, but we don't have it. So when we go to birthday parties and, you know, typically soda is being served and I don't tell my kids you can't have soda, um, but they do ask me, Hey, can I have a soda? And what I'll do is I'll typically take a can and I'll pour them 
half a cup and I'll give it to them and I'll have them split one or whatever. So yeah, here you go. The funny thing is my kids never finish their soda. It's really funny. They'll take like four sips of it and then they'll kind of be like, you know, that's too much and they'll put it down. They haven't been conditioned to drink or have all this incredible sweetness. And so I think some of that will happen too. I think they'll grow up and they'll eat these foods and they'll kind of be like, oh, I don't feel good. And maybe they'll go back and they'll remember how they grew up. At least that's my hope. Um, so, you know, at some point you have to let your kids out in the real world and you can't, you know, they'll be able to provide for themselves. But really the, at that point, my hope is that they'll have developed long-term behaviors because it works in the opposite too. I mean, if you're a kid and you grew up in a house that just ate junk food all the time and had bad relationships to food, and then you grow up and you're overweight and now you're trying to fix your diet, you're trying to erase, you know, decades of, of, of behaviors that you developed at home. Um, and you know how hard that can be. So really the goal is to develop positive behaviors and associations with food until they go off and, and provide for themselves. Yeah. And I think being the example um, that applies not just to kids, but a lot of people, you know, will come to me saying, how do I get my, you know, my mom or my sister or my, you know, whatever friend or family member to care about their health. And the more that you try to impose and, and tell them what, what to do or, you know, project your own values onto them, the more it's going to likely push them away. So just being the example, setting that example, it applies not just to kids, but I think, you know, to pretty much anybody in your in your inner circle. Um, one of the things that I think is also challenging along those same lines, which is another relatively new area when we, when we talk about health and well-being, um, is our relationship with technology. Because, you know, as you were saying, a lot of um, explaining kind of that process, I started thinking about the early interaction with blue lights and screens. And, you know, one of the things I always talk about is, you know, if you showed an iPhone to a two-year-old, you know, the two-year-old has no idea what the iPhone's capabilities or functions or features are. It doesn't care, but it's going to come back and basically be addicted to that blue light and, and, you know, want to play with it. And one, you know, it's almost going to be like mesmerized. Um, And so this like new, uh, you know, we're so connected that it's almost making us more disconnected and it's having an impact on uh, just our overall health and well-being. You know, where do you see that? Is that something that you see kind of being, uh, you know, a a relatively new challenge that we're kind of having to navigate? Um, That's easily the largest. uh, That is the the behemoth in terms of the next big challenge we're going to have towards our health is the the digital technological revolution. Now, I, I want to be clear before I continue, you know, tech is not uh, bad. It's not good either. It's it's a it's just a tool, like a hammer. Like if I I take a hammer and I put it on the uh, on a coffee table in front of you and I say, "Is that a good or bad hammer?" Well, uh, neither. It's just a hammer. Now, I could take it and I could build a house with it or I could hit you in the head with it and cause some, you know, some a severe injury. So how I use it determines whether it's good or bad. That's the same thing with tech. It is easily the most powerful tool ever developed uh, by humans ever. Um, the closest comparison we have to tech and how, you know, tools transform uh, humanity would be like the, the printing press. The printing press did that with information. But tech is like that times a trillion. And so it just poses new challenges. And with every new change and revolution, humans have to learn how to navigate those challenges, maximize the benefits, minimize the negatives. And so what happens is we have to develop uh, practices. So I'll use another example, another analogy. 
for most of human history, people didn't have to go to gyms. They didn't have to go to gyms because life was active. There was, you didn't have to develop any activity practices. You were active because you went and got your water and you washed your clothes by hand and you hunted and you built things and you carried things and every day was a workout. And so if I, you know, if I go back a thousand years and I try to explain to people uh, that I'm going to open up a, a, a gym that you're going to go and work out in, people would be like, why? That makes no sense. My body hurts from, from every day. There's no need for practices. Same thing with food. If you go back, you know, 5,000 years, we didn't really need practices or at least too many practices around food because we didn't have every flavor and texture and, you know, food available to us all the time. We, food was available. It was certain types of food only, and it wasn't always available. You had to work for it. Um, and so we didn't have to develop too many practices around eating. Well, today you got to, you have to, we live in modern world, right? If you don't have a practice around activity, you will uh, have poor health. You'll have poor movement patterns and joint pain. And, you know, we, nowadays our bodies hurt because we don't move enough. In the past, it was because we moved too much. So you have to develop practices. I got to go to a gym. I have to learn about food. I have to develop certain relationships with food. I have to understand what's in food so that I can fuel my body properly. Well, you're going to have to do that with technology. Technology requires practices. Otherwise, we are going to see a lot of the negatives. We're going to see a lot of the, and I'm, and it's already becoming very clear. You can see this in children. The rate of uh, anxiety, depression, and even suicide among kids has skyrocketed. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are constantly consumed and distracted by technology. We have no quiet time. We have no, uh, we're not, we, we're losing a lot of the skills that, that seem to be important to our health. Uh, we're developing what's called technological amnesia. You know, when I was a kid, I remembered at least 20 phone numbers. Today, I don't remember anybody's phone number. I don't know how to get anywhere because I use my navigation all the time. It seems like certain skills might have been necessary uh, for our health, and we're kind of outsourcing it to our tech. Um, we are constantly distracted. We don't have quiet time to be with ourselves, consolidate our thoughts. Uh, we're consuming social media at very, very high rates and in ways that are not necessarily uh, intentional, or at least we're not aware uh, of, of how we're using them. It's kind of this unaware state of scrolling and flipping between social media platforms and looking for dopamine hits. Um, we're, we're not aware fully yet of the power of comparing yourself uh, subconsciously, subconsciously to people on social media, which, which represent you know, 0.1% of the population, but your brain doesn't know that. So you're, you're flipping through all these pictures of good looking people who have great lives, or at least they look like they have great lives. And subconsciously you're comparing your own life and your own body and your own self to these people. And so now you feel like you're way lower on the hierarchy ladder than you actually are. Um, and so we're just, we just need to start to develop practices. Um, and so I think that's going to be the next big health and wellness challenge. I think the health, fitness, wellness industry is going to be the one to usher in these practices. I think we're going to be the ones to provide the answers if we do it right. Um, but right now we're in the middle of figuring out what that looks like. But I 100% know this for a fact. If you don't have practices around tech um, and in your digital use, um, you will get lots of the negative, potential negative consequences. And you may learn these lessons the hard way, kind of like we did with obesity. 
where, oh, everybody's really, really fat and unhealthy. Now what do we do? You know, it may get to the point where like, oh, crap, everybody's anxious, lots of stress. People are feeling terrible about themselves. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're consuming our every waking moment with this, you know, nonsense media, uh, you know, which, you know, sometimes it's okay, but God, at the, at the rate that we're consuming it, it's not that good. I think at some point we'll learn that lesson the hard way. Um, but what we're trying to do now, in fact, is that's actually one of the, the big uh, points of focus for Mind Pump uh, this coming year is going to be to usher in that conversation and what those practices look like because I think it's going to be very important. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement. I do think that's like the biggest challenge that we're facing and will only continue to grow. Um, I actually wrote an article about this, but you know we're we're getting these dopamine hits so often that we're basically desensitizing our dopamine receptors and that's really where you're starting to see some of those mood disorders and you know just some really negative consequences as a result of that um and so just awareness around our relationship with technology is huge and I'm I'm glad that that's kind of like the next um project that you guys are working on uh, are, are there any trends that you're seeing right now that you're encouraged by that you think um, you'd like to see you know, more of or something like budding research that you're interested in um, that seems to be heading in a positive direction? Um, well, I think the tech wellness movement is starting to grow. So I, I think that's a, a really big one. Um, I, I see a trend in people um, seeking out struggle. So people seeking out challenge. So you're seeing people now who are like, oh, I'm going to do a cold bath or a cold shower, which is, it sucks, right? It doesn't feel good, but people are finding that it's not only giving them health benefit, but kind of giving them a, a better sense of meaning, believe it or not. I mean, humans find meaning in struggle. It's a fact. Um, people are signing up for obstacle course races, doing challenges. I think we're, we're getting to a point now where we have, we're getting to the point where we have everything that we thought we wanted, but we're realizing that it's actually not what we need. And so I think the trend that's starting to happen now is people are starting to seek out struggle and challenge as ways to give their life more purpose and meaning. I also see uh, a, a resurgence of spirituality. Um, which I think is, is good. And it's, it's, it's coming from a lot of different directions. Um, but I, I think what's going to end up happening is it's going to come full circle and you're going to see a lot of people, you're going to see a lot of trendsetters start to talk about the old wisdom of religion. Um, you know, religion has its faults, most of it being the way men have applied it. Uh, but I think you're going to start to see a kind of full circle where, the wisdom of religion of, for example, abstinence of, you know, uh, controlling your, your, uh, you know, your, your desires, for example, like, uh, you know, I just want to do all these things that feel awesome. And then realizing, well, hold on a second. There's actually some, there's actually some value in measuring that. And there's more value in, you know, some of these traditional things that we've laughed at for a long time. And now we're starting to realize that there's actually, there's a lot of wisdom in some of that stuff. So I think we're going to start to see some of that kind of come back, uh, hopefully in a good way, hopefully not in a bad way. Um, so those are the things, the trends that I see. And I think that the health and wellness space is going to push a lot of that. You know, I, I really do. I think the health and wellness space would be the ones to, to, to talk about the value of, uh, you know, monogamy as, as boring as, as silly as that sounds today. You're starting to see uh, kids 
the I generation are talking about valuing monogamy now. Um, and I think it's just they have access to pornography and sex. And there's nothing wrong with sex. And I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with pornography. But I think that because they have so much access to it that they're like, oh, my God, I don't this isn't really what I thought it was. What I really what's more valuable is maybe finding a really good connection with someone. Maybe I'll that's better and I'll value that more. And they're and they're kind of seeking that out. Like the I generation's having less promiscuity, more less sex, more commit. They want to commit more. They're less likely to to they view divorce differently than previous generations. I don't think we're going to go into this like Puritan society by any means. I just think that we're starting to seek out that old wisdom because it's starting to become cool again. It was kind of not cool for a while. And so once things become cool, then you start to see society embrace certain aspects of it. So is that a good or bad thing? I think all wisdom, like true wisdom is good. I think that, you know, if you look at all the ancient religions, there's a reason why they're so popular and big and why they've been around for so long. I think you can learn something from all of them. Um, so you're, I think you're starting to see a resurgence of that. Um, so that's what I'm kind of keeping my eye on right now. Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of people are starting to just, you know, be more upfront about wellness in general, uh, you know, mindset you see coming up more often. Uh, being more vulnerable is considered to be, you know, the cool thing to do now if you're an influencer, like putting yourself out there. Um, and obviously that can be taken um, and manipulated. But I think for the most part, um, there's a lot of people who are doing it the right way. Uh, unfortunately, still a lot of people who are kind of set in the in the old ways. But uh, I think I agree with with that shift is starting to happen. Um, so you kind of alluded to it a little bit about the direction that you guys are going. But I'm curious um, if like your vision of Mind Pump if you had, if you could have predicted that this is where you'd be sitting right now and what, you know, what's next, what's next for you guys? What's the, what's the big challenge that you're looking forward to? Uh, we all had big aspirations when we started mind pump. Um, but we were patient. So I think we pretty much knew this is what we wanted to do. Um, uh, we, we knew we wanted to create, uh, we started with the podcast and then shortly after I remember, I don't remember what, I think it was why we were creating, um, one of our maps programs, we, we were just like, we're going to be a media company. Like we want, we want to use new media to convey our message and we want to develop other talent and help develop other people and bring them to light people that we think are saying the right things. So I think we would have predicted uh, where we're at now moving forward. That's just going to grow. We want to own the fitness and health space in new media. We want, when people talk about in 10 years, when people talk about, who are the top fitness media companies and brands, you know, in terms of YouTube, podcast, written information, blogs, you know, books, whatever, um, Mind Pump is going to come up to the top. That's the goal. That's the idea. We want to be talked about as the, the people that were the first ones to bring health, fitness, and wellness together in real sustainable ways. Um, you know, uh, so uh, that's the direction we're going to continue to move. I think, we're, I mean, we're only growing every year. We, t- we grow about, we, we, we grow our business about 50% growth, which is a pretty good growth. I think it's a good pace for us. I think too, too fast would have been not that good. Um, although that is pretty quick. Um, and we're going to keep going. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. We, we really enjoy. It's weird. Like I've never done something that I love. I loved, I've always loved what I've done. But I'm, I've never been this excited all the time. It's really crazy. Like we come to work every day and it's like, well, what are we doing next? And that hasn't changed for four years. So if that keeps up, 
uh, we're going to be full speed ahead. You know, if we ever get bored, then, you know, maybe we'll do something different. But I don't see that happening for a while. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Was there anything that surprised you from just a business perspective? Because I think, you know, you started from purely just, you know, passion and wanting to provide value, but not necessarily really having the ultimate like game plan for monetizing and, you know, where that was going to come from. Is there anything that kind of came up just from random opportunity that you were like, wow, I didn't really think that this would be the avenue um, that caused uh, financial growth or just, you know, growth in your audience or outreach or anything like that? Uh, well, just learning the internet marketing process. Uh, we None of us had any clue what that looked like, or at least I shouldn't say that. Doug actually had a pretty good idea of what that was like, but the rest of us had no idea. So that whole process, um, you know, learning that, learning how that worked. Uh, a big one, of, uh, you know, for us, even just we still continue to learn this to this day, is that when we stick to the simple ideas, we get the most traction. And we it's, it's easy to forget that people need to understand the basics. It's easy to want to talk about the real complex, crazy stuff. Like, imagine that you're talking to yourself on the other side of this podcast. Like, what do I want to know? Like, I've been in fitness for 22 years. I want to know all the crazy stuff. You know, I want to know all the insane science and I want to get deep. But most people listening just, you know, talk about the basics. Like, what are the top three things I need to do to build muscle? Like, you know, just talk specifically about how to count macros, like real basic stuff. That's the stuff that we kind of keep coming back to. It gets us the most traction, the most downloads, the best response. It's what people right now uh, need to hear. And that's something we constantly get surprised on. Like every time we're like, gosh, of course, an episode on the top three things you need to do to burn body fat would have, you know, 20% more downloads than the episode that we did on you know, how, you know, ketones versus glycogen, which one's going to fuel your muscles better, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. That's so true. And and the basics, uh, we definitely overlook them way too often. And it, it is the most important thing for sure. Um, so before I let you go, I wanted to just circle back to the YMCA story because I didn't want to forget that uh, if you would share what went down. Oh, gosh. So let's see. I was uh, I was either 15, maybe 15 or 16. And um, I was in there working out with my cousin every once in a while I'd, I'd work out with a, my, my younger cousin. And, uh, I had read about strip sets. So a strip set is when you take a weight and you do as many reps as you can. And then you take a little bit of weight off the bar and then you do more reps until you can't do any more. And then you take a little bit of weight off the bar and you keep going until you're left with just the bar. And so, uh, I had taken a barbell and we had loaded it up with a bunch of five pound plates. So you can imagine what this bar looked like. And, you know, I'm 15, 16, so I'm probably bench pressing with uh, 130, maybe 140 pounds. So it was like five pound plates, you know, all the way down both sides of the bar. And we don't have collars on because you got to strip them off real quick, right? And that was his job as, as my cousin, as he, you know, slides one off. And so here I am, I'm, I'm in the gym and I'm doing as many as I can then I hold it up and I rack it and he takes one side off and I keep going, keep going, keep going. And, um, I, I had gotten down to where there was like five, like four or five, five pound plates. I'm really struggling. And I don't know what happened. For some reason, I forgot to rack the weight. And so he goes and strips one side off, makes one side a little heavier. The bar starts to swing to one side. The weights start to slide down, which now lengthens the lever. So it gets even heavier on my left side. 
weights come off, but I'm pushing so hard to get it up. Plus, I'm fatigued that I flipped the bar basically out of my hands and I broke the <laughs> broke one of the mirrors Damn. in there. And there's weights everywhere, and everybody's <laughs> looking at me, and I'm like, "Oh shit!" And so we left, never went back. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so I want to respect your time. I mean, I had we could have gone into we didn't even touch on training. Uh, the the maps programs that you guys have put together are top notch. So um, I'm sure that process of um, you know, from your experience of one-on-one programming and personal training to then having to write programs that are being, uh, you know, performed by thousands, tens of thousands of people, I'm sure, um, was, was a bit of an adjustment. But, um, you know, maybe we'll do a round two and we'll just dive into all the details on training. Uh, but I do appreciate you joining me. And if you want to just take a minute to let everybody know where they can find you, how they can connect with you and all that good stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So our MAPS programs are, we design them for different types of individuals and different goals. So if you're a beginner, intermediate, advanced, if your goal is to build muscle and train like a bodybuilder, or if you want to train like an athlete, so you want to be able to move well, or if you like to have fun workouts, and so you want to do like a strongman-inspired type workouts or whatever, we have all kinds of different programs. You can find all of those at mapsfitnessproducts.com. Uh, the website, uh, excuse me, the, the podcast is Mind Pump. Um, our website is mindpumpmedia.com. And then if you have any questions you want to ask me, I, I pride myself in, in answering most of my private messages on Instagram. My page is mindpumpsal. And so you can find me there and ask me questions. And then finally, if you want just free information um, that you can read, we have a lot of guides that are free, absolutely free. So like how to build your legs, how to build your arms, work on your midsection, burning body fat, building muscle, if you're a personal trainer, I have a guide for personal trainers that helps you, you know, get started and become successful. You can find all of that, those things at mindpumpfree.com. Awesome. And I highly recommend everybody check that out because, like I said, nobody is putting out more content, more valuable content uh, than the guys at Mind Pump. So, Sal, I really do appreciate your time and uh, have a great rest of your day and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Mike.